Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. Five, four, three, two, one. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. A confirmed attack is taking place against the United States. Aliens from an unknown location have been reported in multiple states. We are controlling transmission. There is another world that awaits, far beyond what we can see and feel. A place that's anything but ordinary. What you believe might not be. Step into the zone of the best unknown. UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, conspiracies and cover-ups. Into the paranormal we go. to be with you once again somewhere between the paranormal and the abnormal as we say it's the subjects you know that we don't fully understand that really intrigue me the most what about you i always uh, welcome the opportunity to learn new things and it's what we strive to do on the program each and every night that we gather across the radio uh, across this great country of ours and beyond hearing from a lot of you who listen to us uh, out of the states as well and we're grateful to have all of you wherever you're listening whether it's live on the radio uh, through streaming or if you're uh, catching us on podcast we uh, really appreciate you making us one of the one of the top shows out there as far as uh, that is concerned and I don't say that enough so uh, so here we go got that out of the way first minute of the show and here we are you know when when I came across some recent studies about near-death experiences in particular, I was naturally interested in learning more because we're constantly uh, checking the internet, our feeds, to uh, make sure that we are staying on top of paranormal news and that we are finding interesting guests and to keeping the wheel churning, so to speak. And so I'm always on the hunt for uh, topics that we can turn into shows or that we can make segments for the news. And when I found some groundbreaking discoveries about what happens to the brain when the body is in a coma, having a near-death experience, uh, or even in some cases as one passes, uh, because not everyone who goes into a coma comes out of the coma. I was uh, at that point after finding the discoveries 
interesting. I wanted to make sure that we had the right guest to bring to the program to talk about it. And I think we have found him. Have you ever wondered what what happens in the brain when somebody has almost died and is being resuscitated? I know it's not a very comforting thought. We we don't wish it upon uh, even our enemies, right? But it's inevitable. There are sometimes those situations that occur where if one has any hope of surviving, they must be you know, be put in uh, a coma if it's in the case of like a medically induced situation. Maybe they were seriously injured and, and they've suffered some brain damage. They've been put in a coma because we're trying to preserve them. So many times, you know, there are some good outcomes that come from this. Others, not so much. But the in-between is really what is the most unknown Because we really don't know what happens in the brain during that period. Although we have a better idea thanks to research that is being done. And I mentioned one study in particular. Dr. Sam Parnia in the Department of Medicine at NYU's Langone Health. Last year this study came out found that almost 40% of those suffering from cardiac arrest who got CPR are still aware Although they are unconscious, the brainwaves still show signs of life, have been known to for as long as an hour as the patient is brought back. They are literally teetering between life and death. And while in a coma, we know that those individuals do not respond physically. But that doesn't mean they're totally gone. Researchers measured oxygen in the brain and electrical activity that suggested there was some sort of mental function, in some capacity at least, during CPR. As their heart is shocked back into a normal rhythm. And then after being brought back, the recollections, we've heard many of those stories throughout the years. And I highly recommend any of the shows we've done on near-death experiences. Check them out because this has been some wild stuff that we've reported on over the years. And we're talking about things like seeing yourself be worked on by the medical staff, by doctors. It's experiencing the pain that you were in in that situation or in uh, experiencing dreams that could be completely unrelated to your near-death experience. Sometimes it's just vague feelings that something is happening around you, but you don't know anything more than that. Many times, sometimes people see the light or see loved ones. Or encounter beings. Sometimes. uh, Experiencers are at peace. But. Some participants in in this study in particular. Said that they had an out of body experience. And others. Actually. Recalled their own death. Of course they survived their death. Because they were right there. In between. 
in between life and death. And, and they saw themselves die, but then they came back and were forever changed by that moment. It's something that happens every day. We're talking about thousands of people across the world that undergo medically induced comas. And for some survivors, it is a complete and utter blank. Like they just, there's nothing. No memories whatsoever. Others, though, are paralyzed, but they are aware of everything around them. Others find themselves unable to move, can't speak, can't move their eyes. Some experience alternate lives that they grieve than when they are awakened or encounter ultra-vivid nightmares and perhaps wake up screaming, undergo a deep spiritual oneness with the universe, or say they have glimpsed the afterlife. I mean, these are really, really life-changing events. Along these lines, I welcome to the program Alan Pierce as we discuss with him some of the extraordinary experiences of expanded consciousness that arise during these states. Alan is a journalist, broadcaster, former correspondent for the BBC, author of several books. He's contributed to numerous publications from the Time, uh, from Time Magazine to the Sunday Times of London, And along with his wife, Beverly Pierce, Allen is the author of Coma and Near-Death Experience, The Beautiful, Disturbing, and Dangerous World of the Unconscious. And he's here now, all the way from France. That's where we say good morning, Alan. Good to have you here. Jeremy, I'm going to say good evening to you. And thanks for that great introduction. Um, It is even stranger than than you said already. Even stranger. Uh, We're going to explore that. Well, where do we want to start? Where do we want to start then? Well, let's put it this way. When a doctor places a patient into a medically induced coma, uh, they would tell the patient possibly and their relatives that the event itself would be a total blank in their lives. Well, it turns out that it isn't. And the other thing that coma for the past 50 years has uh, been seen as an essential tool in critical care. Uh, that it enables the deepest form of restorative sleep and it gives the patient the best chance. That is not the case. It turns out there are only a handful of cases where people agree that you can place somebody into a medically induced coma, which is prolonged deep sedation. That would be, say, if somebody was having a brain seizure or they had certain type of wounds or they're recovering, say, from a, a heart operation. What tends to happen is that people get placed into medically induced comas because sometimes the hospital is just overwhelmed. During COVID, they just did not know what to do with the patients. So they thought the best thing to do is sedate them, let nature and medication do what it can. And uh, when they come out of their comas, um, people have experienced, in most cases, the most remarkable events, but no one is listening. Uh, what do you mean by that? No no one is listening. Well, 
Wistful care has become a conveyor belt of care where no one's actually looking over their shoulder at the product coming off the end. Uh, they're too busy uh, focusing on the next patient. So what happens is you get moved down the line once you leave the intensive care unit. Mostly, if you've been on a ventilator, you can't actually speak for weeks of the time because of damage to vocal cords and other complications. They have all manner of problems just readjusting. When they come out of a coma, it's not like in the movies. Um, they are so confused. Often they don't know who they are. Many a time they don't recognize people in the room, such as their partner or their children. Uh, one survivor told me she didn't even recognize humans. So you're in a world of confusion, and it takes an awful long time before you can even begin to process the events that you have been through in coma, which doctors tell you are only false memories. And if you get the opportunity to talk to somebody, the chances are um, they're going to think, well, hold on a moment. Um, until very recently, this person was drugged up to the eyeballs and beyond. Of course, they're going to have some strange recollections, but recollections, but it's it's not what anybody thinks. People within coma, um, you mentioned near-death experiences, for sure, if you're in a coma, um, you are close to death. So if you, it's quite likely that you may experience a near-death experience, and they are. The majority of near-death experiences that people share tend to be beautiful affairs, whereas those in coma tend to be much, much darker, um, horrendous, beyond, off the scale in many ways. And people also, as you mentioned earlier, experience alternate lives. Um, some would say that they're actually uh, reliving a past life. But when I say experiencing an alternate or past life, it's minute by minute. It's not like regression therapy when you go back and look at a past life you can remember it in the way that i might remember my last vacation um th th these these people are actually living a life minute by minute and then suddenly they're thrust back into this world and they don't know which life is real interesting uh, you can't differentiate between the two huh um they think invariably that the life that they have just been pulled out of is their real life, and it may well have been, uh, and that they are now in the coma. And there's many coma survivors that I've spoken to who are not even sure if they're alive or not. Um, many of them will tell me they often think they're back in their coma, that they feel that they could slip back into it at any given moment. Uh, and no one's ever the same again, physically or mentally. Yeah, I can imagine. As I said, life-changing experiences. Our conversation just getting underway with Alan Pierce. I'm Jeremy Scott. More to come. Into the paranormal. paranormal. Imagine being on the brink. I would uh, imagine that it would change my life as well. We're talking with Alan Pierce tonight, who is author of Coma and Near-Death Experience, The Beautiful, Disturbing, and Dangerous World of the Unconscious, along with his wife, Beverly Pierce. So, Alan, uh, tell us about what you've uh, learned about how these experiences are life-changing. They're life-changing in two ways. Um, let's start with mental 
When somebody comes out of a coma, there's been a massive amount of damage done to their brain, which it would appear that most doctors haven't got the first clue of. They refer to coma more often than not as sleep. But ironically, the one thing that's happening to a patient is that they are not sleeping. If your brain switched off, imagine it like a, a desktop computer and, you, and you've pulled it out, uh, unplugged it from the mains. There's no way it's going to work. So the brain itself is not going to go through its circadian rhythms. You're not going to have REM sleep. Just three days of sleep deprivation can lead to can lead to acute brain failure. This is shocking. It can wipe tens of points of a person's IQ. Now, that's just the mental side. Physically, because people have been immobile for so long, a vast amount of damage has been caused. Now, we've always been told that best read, bed rest is the best thing, and it's been that way for thousands of years. Now they've discovered that just one week of bed rest can result in the loss of 40%. That's 40% of lean muscle, just one week. Now, many people are in a coma state for weeks or months at a time. They're turned every two hours or so, but they're not getting any exercise. Their muscles are wasting, and you can't see the muscle wastage because they're so pumped for the fluids often about 50 pounds weight in excess fluids that you just can't see this damage. And when they come out of the coma, for one thing, I mean, they haven't had much sleep, but they don't want to go back to sleep again in many cases because they feel they're being consigned back to the depths of hell and they will stay awake as long as they can. As a result, they're extremely tired, they can't balance, they they they. they become reclusive, and they're just shadows of their former selves. And it's extremely rare for them to go back to the, their former job before, in, in the role that they had before. So in many cases, people do not get over that fear. Um, people just don't necessarily get over coma. For the rest of your life, in one way or another, it will bother you. Many are concerned that they th- they've got cognitive damage that they're aware of it. Sometimes they're told, well, they haven't. And sometimes people have had an IQ test prior and they managed to have an IQ test after and tens of points have been wiped off. And if you had an average IQ, just the loss of a few points can really render most people, I mean, seriously damaged. So, and it's just not noticed. There's so little noticed. Doctors and nurses, once they... As I said earlier, it's conveyor belt of care. Once someone's down the line, that's it. That's the end of it. And they just get the next person in. And uh, almost every survivor I have spoken to, without exception, has been abandoned by the system, no matter in which country they're in. Yeah, it's, it's certainly something that you need a little help getting over, and it sounds like that help uh, post, uh, uh, post-care is, is not uh, being offered. Alan Pierce, my guest tonight... I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal. AlanPierce.com, P-E-A-R-C-E, his website, if you want to give it a look during the break. News coming across most of these affiliates. Paranormal news straight ahead with George Henry and more to come. I'm Jeremy Scott. Wake up call tonight into the paranormal.
This is Paranormal News. Multiple pilots recently reported lights in the form of triangles over the Canadian prairies. Our 7062, go ahead. Yeah, is there any active military uh, airspace just like north of Winnipeg? Uh, no, nothing, nothing I'm aware of. Air traffic controllers for more than an hour and a half on the morning of January 19th conversed with the pilots who reported seeing the light formations. We've had a few reports now of some sort of flashing light somewhere over the prairie, perhaps in a triangle shape. Yes, they've been uh, all the way across uh, the prairies this morning or overnight. Pilots of at least four aircraft called in their sightings. Lots of active uh, bright light information. There's uh, around six of them. They keep forming up in a triangle. So we've been staring at these things for well over an hour, and they're high up in the sky. The lights are said to be as high as 50 to 100,000 feet and moving very fast. At least one of the crew members thought it could be sunlight being reflected off satellites. Another said there was no way it could be satellites. Others were unsure what it was. There have been more than two dozen reports of similar sightings from all over Canada in the past two years. George Henry, Paranormal News. almost over when you see the tunnel. While in that coma, he saw angelic beings and realized that none of this could have been a dream or hallucination. They admitted me into the hospital, kept me intubated, and put me into a room in the ICU. I saw myself just lying down, and I could tell that there was something wrong, but I could hear people talking. It suggests that there must be some consciousness or awareness going on during cardiac arrest. And there may be explicit recall of events. Searching for the truth, asking the hard questions as we ponder what could be. You're traveling into the paranormal. You wake up from uh, being on the brink, and this is the reality that uh, many people face. Uh, Some never kind of make it out of that fog, unfortunately. Uh, Talking with Alan Pierce, who has researched... This uh, coma and near-death experience, the beautiful, disturbing, and dangerous world of the unconscious, co-authored along with his wife, Beverly Pierce. So, um, Alan, I'm interested, uh, have have you or your wife ever had a, a near-death experience, or, or how did you uh, get involved in this? Well, um, I actually think I have had a near-death experience, but let's just put that on hold for a second. How did I get into this? I'm, I'm a journalist, so I'm always asking questions. You know, why is this happening? Why are they doing that? And it was the early days of COVID. And I'm watching the TV news, and yet more and more people are being placed into medically induced comas. I just simply wanted to know why. And um, as I said earlier, the doctors have got one explanation, and um, I took that on board, and then I thought, well, I don't accept just one answer. I'm just going to look a little further here. And I started finding coma survivors, and I started finding them on Facebook groups, the coma survivors group, for one. And I was allowed sort of to sit in the shadows and, and watch what people were saying. People were recounting events within coma when no events should have taken place, And people were also cataloguing a range of ailments, regardless of why they were in hospital in the first place, 
there was a remarkable similarity between the ailments, you know, the the you know, the pain, the lack of balance, the the, the mental cognitive uh, functioning. That these should have rung alarm bells way before I ever came along. So suddenly, I'm seeing that here's the doctor's story, here's the patient's story. They're so totally at odds. There is something here that needs exploring. And so did you, uh, how did you start doing that? Uh, did you uh, start your research, that is? Well, it's, it's not the easiest thing to find a coma survivor, and it's not always the easiest thing to, to get them to talk. I like to think that I haven't interviewed a single coma survivor for the book. I have, however, spent a lot of time talking with them, and I would explain what I was doing. Uh, finding things out and sharing things with them. And then over time, people would, would start to tell me their experiences and telling me things that they never told anyone. They certainly hadn't told doctors. They haven't told friends or family. More often than not, because of the experiences within coma, which are not supposed to happen, people actually think they've lost their mind. And I can't think of a single coma survivor that I spoke to, and we're talking well in excess of 20. I can't think of a single one that didn't describe themselves as having gone mad. In in probably some of the ways that you've already shared with us, but in others as well. Uh, they take on such a range. On one level, I mean, for some people it is a blank. Others find themselves with full consciousness in the dark, not sure what's going on. Why am I here? There was um, a young girl who um, we interviewed for the book. She was 15 when she had an accident and they placed her into a coma. And she couldn't understand why her mummy wasn't coming to wake her up. And she was just trapped in the dark. And time is just ticking on and she fills the passage of time. So that's one level. And then I don't like to use the word nightmares because nightmares imply a form of sleep or dream. Uh, people are having nightmarish events that are so ghastly, so strange, they defy all imagination. And there's no Hollywood scriptwriter can actually come up with events so strange as these because they are beyond the human experience. And then additionally, people are having alternate lives. Now, in some cases, they get a clear run of the life, you know, decades, as it were, and all the usual things one has in their life. You um, hold down jobs, you get married, you have kids, you go on vacation, and uh, it's a life very much like every life. For others, it's a loop of one death followed by another death followed by another death, almost always ending in appalling violence. And when you come out of something like that and you know one to talk to, and people will say, well, this, surely these are dreams, but you can't dream if your brain is offline. There's, in my mind, this is a clear demonstration that the brain and the mind are not the same thing because here we have the mind taking leave of the body and going off in adventures of its own. Okay, so since you said you may have had a near-death experience what was it that happened to you, Alan? Well, halfway through researching the book, someone very, very close to me died. And uh, it was a shock, an utter shock. And the thing about it was that at that time, I realized, yes, okay, I've lost her. 
but she's not dead physically. Her body's gone, but her her spirit's not gone. I mean, we're all energy, and she was a powerful ball of energy. And the first law of thermodynamics is that energy can neither be destroyed nor created. So, so life goes on. So I had this sense that she hadn't died. And what they did to me, it made me realize that everything I had learned to change my outlook... I'd learned from researching the book, and it's inside the book, although I never set out to do this. I set out to explore highly dubious medical procedure, but it led me deep into the realms of the non-physical. Yeah. Um, and so you say uh, stories that defy the imagination. Can you share a few of those with us? Okay. Let, let me give you an example. Uh, let me tell you Nikki's story. Nikki's from Edinburgh in Scotland. She contracted pneumonia, and that went into sepsis, which could lead to full organ failure. And the doctors were thinking she's unlikely to even survive the night. So they placed her into a medically induced coma. What Nikki didn't know that the doctors discovered was that she was pregnant. So... They told the husband, they said, given the complications, it would be much better if we performed an abortion. Her chances of survival will be that much better. So Nikki is placed into a medically induced coma. When people find themselves in a coma, they often have told me that they woke up within their coma, the way one might wake up you know, on a train or something and just suddenly be back in, in, in the world. They wake up with full consciousness. Nikki woke up on a train in India. She's in a small compartment on a moving train. She describes it in infinite detail, the, the, the light shafting through the shuttered windows, the dust, the incredible range of smells, the, the incredible heat as well. And she looks around this compartment, and it contains everything you would need for a newborn baby. Nikki discovers that she's in labor, in intense pain. She gives birth. She manages to clean the baby, to swallow the baby, to hold him in her arms. And she looks into his eyes and she's just blown away. She told me, I've never seen a blue that color. It was like an ice blue. It just burnt deep into your soul. Fast forward a bit. And they brought Nikki out of her coma uh, after about a month. And when you come out of a coma, you're in a world of confusion and you, you, you often can't talk or anything. But as Nikki starts to regain her faculties, she, she wants her baby. So she starts to mimic rocking a baby in her arms. And her husband's watching this, watching this, knowing that she had an abortion, that she didn't know anything about it. So here she is rocking a baby, and he's, he's totally freaked out. Now, that's bad enough, and the hospital says, there's no way you're ever going to be able to carry another child again. Fast forward. Nikki falls pregnant. This time she gives birth in a hospital in Scotland. The nurse holds a baby in her arms. What's the first thing the, the nurse said? Oh, my God. His eyes, they're so beautiful. They're a blue I've never seen before. They burn deep into your soul. And so the, the point of that story is? The point of that story is, did Nikki give birth twice to the same child? 
how did she know she was pregnant? She gives birth. She has a baby who's called Mason. Um, again, the baby is born into this world. And it's not exactly the same baby, but the traits are there. The eyes, certain personality traits that she honestly feels that she gave birth to this baby twice. So sometimes uh, there can be a few things that are off about uh, what you experience in this state versus when you when you come back. Uh, but for the most part, uh, they're the same kind of experiences. No, they're not. They're, they're, they're in a kind of ballpark, let's say. I mean, every one of the stories that people have told me for the book, they're all different. They're just so remarkably different. More often than not, I mean, there's the examples. What, 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 I, what, I, what I meant by that is um, that what they remember of their experiences after the fact usually matches, except there might be a few things that are off. It doesn't normally match anything, because if you've had an alternate life, um, or possibly a past life, it's you've got no reference for it in, in, in this life, and you can't understand why you're grieving, in this case, for a baby that was lost. Many people grieving for their partners and other children, just grieving for their lives. And others just find themselves in a, a loop of just never-ending nightmares. And it just completely horrifies them. And when they're out of this, they just fear they're going to come back, go back into it. They don't want to sleep and uh, will do anything to stay awake, to not go back into that terrible, terrible world. And things will set them off, different smells, odd sounds, a song on a radio, whatever. And in a flash, they're back there inside their cone and panicking. So people have both positive and negative experiences. Is that correct? Yeah, very much so. Um, there's one example, say, uh, in the book of a hospital chaplain, um, Corey Agricola. He, he was from Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, a Christian, as you might imagine. And he effectively died within his coma. And he actually found himself in heaven, completely in heaven, except he couldn't find God. There was no Jesus. But what he saw was an overwhelming mountain of light. He could hear praise music. He had scripture verses in his vision. Uh, some he knew, others he didn't. And when he was out of his coma and he had his faculties back, he had to know about these other scripture verses and he found them and they existed. He now knew them, but he'd never studied them before. It's almost as if there some, uh, comes some sort of knowledge or wisdom through these experiences that the individual didn't have previously. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think maybe a form of collective consciousness that, that uh, perhaps we can all tap into. It could just simply be that in, the, in some cases uh, you are having re-experiencing a previous life. It could be for others that you are having a form of near-death experience, but not the type we expect. The, the general idea of a near-death experience is, is that it's a beautiful affair. It is not nightmarish, but people are. They're trapped in these astonishing nightmares, and there's no one they can turn to, uh, no one they can talk to. They're All right, we'll pause there and come back because we are at that time where we have to take a break with Alan Pierce. I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and action. Into the paranormal. 
I'm Jeremy Scott. Somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal, Alan Pierce is my guest tonight. Have you had a near-death experience? Have you known someone who's had one of these? We'd like to talk with you. 503-506-0396 in the United States or Canada. 503-506-0396 or ITP51 on Skype. Alan, we have about five minutes here before we round out the hour. So uh, is there anything uh, particular that we haven't uh, discussed uh, so far that you'd like to wrap the hour up with? We'll have more time in the next hour, but uh, you, you did actually. Yeah, you asked me if I had a near-death experience. And I, I think I did. I can't be sure. So, a few months after after Rebecca died, I uh, I wasn't able to work. I, I just it was not the impetus as one might. And um, I was I was asleep, and I found myself suddenly trapped in a like a tractor beam of powerful grey light and the overwhelming belief was that I'd been here multiple times before multiple times before and I had this sense that whilst I'd been here before there'd been occasions where I actually wanted to be here, in this instance I did not want to be here, I had to finish the book and I found myself arguing and arguing and then suddenly I found myself just looking out the window and then within a day I was back writing the book and the book then took a whole new, whole new course so I think I experienced one, but not in any sense that I was dying. But uh, I, I, I felt this so real. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what is the? Uh, why do people generally uh, go into uh, a coma? Uh, describe uh, describe the kinds of medical conditions that would put them in that kind of situation. Well, let's say take COVID as an example. Prior to COVID, people that had acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, they found the best way of dealing with them is is to put them on a ventilator and to sedate them, and they appear to be oxygenating well. So they thought this is possibly the way to go for people who've got problems with, with their lungs. When the hospitals were so massively overwhelmed, there wasn't the staff. The staff were burning out. People who had prior knowledge of intensive care and the, the, the need not to keep people deeply sedated, that was gone. And people were just placed into medically induced comas. And uh, it's very hard to say um, how many would survive an event like that because so many do die within coma. It is proven, it is in the medical literature, that comas are lethal absolutely lethal and when you look at the covid death toll you can argue that the numbers of people could have been substantially reduced if they hadn't been placed in a medically induced coma if they've been kept conscious which you can be on a ventilator and they become invested in their own recovery and one of the key elements to human recovery is is just human contact and, and, and knowing that you are on the road to recovery inside a coma, you haven't got any of that. And it's it's just lethal and it's proven lethal. And yet there is no medical or scientific backing that advocates prolonged deep sedation. None. So there are alternatives then. Oh, the alternative is, is, is to keep the person awake. You can put somebody on a ventilator. There are a number of doctors and nurses explain how they do it in the book. And you just talk to the person. You say, we're going to put this tube down your throat. It will keep you alive. Uh, you're going to have a little sleep for a few minutes. Uh, you'll come back. And uh, 
you'll get used to this, it's fine. And they, they knock them out for 20 minutes, half an hour, something like that. And when they come back, it's key to keep them calm. Ideally, you might have a relative beside them, holding a hand or whatever, comforting them. And before you know it, they can they can manage quite well on a ventilator. Um, I've come across people who've been running a business on a laptop whilst on a ventilator. It enables them to pick up their phone and to text their nurses and um, talk to them, to talk to their relatives that way, uh, because they haven't got, they can't speak. And... Uh, they're just engaged. And also, too, mobility is a key factor in recovery. Having somebody just stuck in the bed for weeks or months at a time is so exceptionally damaging. And if you can get them up and about and walking small distances during the course of the day, they're becoming naturally tired. And when they sleep, they're getting proper sleep, not this complete, complete switch off of their brain. Alan Pierce uh, joins us here on the program tonight. We'll have more with him after the news at the top of the hour. I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal. Stick with us. Into the Paranormal store is open. Show off our brand with all sorts of items in the store at paranormalradio.com. We'd love to hear from you, 503-506-0396 in the United States and Canada. That's 503-506-0396, ITP51 on Skype. Our guest tonight, Alan Pierce, alanpierce.com, P-E-A-R-C-E, the book, Coma and Near-Death Experience. Uh, So, Alan, uh, as we enter our second hour here, uh, let's get a little bit more in, in depth into some of the research that you've done on this. But I'm interested generally first in, in how long patients are under a coma. I know that probably varies case to case, but is there a, is there a general time frame? I wouldn't say there was. It, it really does depend on, on, on what's happening to them, what brought them to the hospital in the first place. But not, these aren't usually li- short, right? These aren't usually short. But, well, they can, they can be, but then they can also last many months. Um, three months, for example, I've, I've been told on a number of occasions. Um, you know, there's going to be people listening who've survived a coma. And they've probably had no explanation, no explanation that makes any sense. And what we've managed to do in the book is actually to find the triggers, the mechanisms for these events within coma. If the 
brain is offline, how come the mind is incredibly active? It would seem, for example, if somebody's in the deepest state of meditation, or if they're experimenting with psychedelics, it's been demonstrated that a key element of the brain is switched off. The part of the brain that regulates our conscious reality, this is known as the default mode network, it's been demonstrated that the network is also switched off in coma. This leads to an expansion of consciousness. So when people experience events within coma, the similarity with events that people experience with psychedelics, particularly DMT, which I won't try to pronounce, DMT is a naturally occurring psychedelic compound in humans. Doctors do not know why we produce it. They do not know where we produce it, but they can find it in our system if they look for it. If you look at, say, people that have taken ayahuasca, the Amazonian mystic brew, the key ingredient of which is DMT, the experiences they relate there are remarkably similar to events within coma. So I think we've actually managed to identify two possible triggers, two triggers for why people are experiencing events like this, how their consciousness has expanded. Now, any doctor or scientist, you ask them to explain consciousness, the, the level we're all experiencing now, they just can't do it. The, there is no scientific explanation for consciousness. So if they can't explain that, they haven't got the first hope of explaining events within coma at the deepest levels of unconsciousness or another level of consciousness entirely. So either they've used drugs before entering a coma or these recalls come from the same place as those experiences do. Yeah, it's nothing to do with their prior experience. That naturally, within the system, we don't know why, DMT is being released at key moments of stress. It's extremely likely that this is the mechanism for the uh, near-death experience. Um, and why? Why would nature, God, whatever, give us something so remarkable that appears to ease our passing or perhaps open a doorway to, to what lies beyond? Because so much of what I'm hearing is spiritual. A lot of people would, would like the ability to just switch their brain off. Sometimes people f feel like it's just working 24-7 and they can't get a good night's sleep. But in the case of what we're discussing tonight, uh, there is proof that that part uh, of the brain can be switched off. Oh, the brain is entirely switched off. If you connect somebody within a medically induced coma to an EEG brain scanner, which is a rare thing, it is shocking to see just how flat the line is. They are flatlining. Um, they are effectively, they're not brain dead, but they're effectively, to all intents and purposes, at that time, brain dead. There is nothing, not a bleep, not a blip. It's, it's you know, like a, a heart without a pulse, and the brain is, is doing nothing whatsoever. And yet, the mind is incredibly active, and they can't explain that. Yeah, but there has been some research, uh, and uh, such as the research that I discussed earlier in, in the program, and there's been others as well, where it does seem like we're getting a little bit closer in understanding exactly what happens here. 
I'm not sure that the medical world is anywhere near close to understanding what's happening. They have an explanation of their own. So when people come out of events, come out of a coma, and if they do get to discuss their events, they're just dismissed as false memories. That the mind, the, the brain, has tried to make up for the missing period of time by creating a story. But you open your eyes, you're in hospital, the chances are your brain, mind, is going to conclude, I'm in hospital. That would account for the missing period. Uh, why give me a, an alternate life spanning two or three decades? That makes no sense. None whatsoever. Uh, no one's getting any proper explanation for what's going on. They're told they're hallucinating. Well, hallucinations are conscious state, invariably with the eyes open. So you can't hallucinate within a coma. There, there's a thing called ICU delirium, which is really common in intensive care. It affects up to 80% of the sickest patients. And that's life-changing. Uh, that, that leads to, to absolute terrible damage. And again, they describe events within coma as being delirium. But it's gain. Delirium is a conscious state and not something attainable whilst unconscious. There's no explanation in the medical world. And I don't think they're getting anywhere near close because the medical world and science just refuses to go into this zone. They only concern themselves with things that they can see or they can weigh or they can measure. The non-physical realms, it's, it's mumbo-jumbo to them. It's new age fantasy and they don't want to go there. So you've heard from multiple patients that they wish they had not received this kind of care? Oh, yeah. yeah absolutely wouldn't let it happen to them again. Um, and so many of them know that it's the coma that has caused them the damage, not whatever it was that put them in, into hospital in the first place. A, a variety of, uh, of things, different kinds of accidents, different kinds of illnesses, etc. But they all, so many of them, are aware of the damage that's been caused to them by the coma. The first and foremost one is just the, the, the lack of cognitive skills, ginormous gaps in their memory. Uh, people coming out of coma not knowing their children, certainly not knowing their names, uh, and people don't know how to use a knife and fork. They've lost language in many cases. Uh, they, 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 they can't read or write. Uh, they're so damaged, it's astounding. Is it the, the prolonged sedation that is the most damaging here? It is the lack of sleep, uh, which is really does seem ironic, but they are into serious sleep deprivation. And three days of sleep depth is enough to tip most people over the edge. It's used universally as, as a torture. And uh, we're using it in this instance as a, as a medical treatment without fully understanding the dangers. People are sent off to the darkest recesses of the mind on solo voyages and when they return and they have accounts from these voyages that would blow your mind they're just dismissed you were delirious you hallucinated you had a false memory that's the only explanation you're going to get so when folks are in a coma they're not getting sleep absolutely not and almost every doctor will tell you it is sleep. It is the deepest form of restorative sleep. But all you have to do is connect somebody in a coma to an EEG brain scanner, and you can see there's no activity. When a person is connected to a brain scanner, when they're in REM sleep, it lights up like a Christmas tree. 
It's not doing that in coma. It's completely flat. It is gray, black. So is there a reason this is still going on uh, among the, the doctors in the medical field today that it is still uh, an option? It appears to be the only option that they think they have available. Almost every doctor and nurse that I have spoken to, apart from those who've realized the errors of their ways, they all believe that a person on a mechanical ventilator cannot tolerate having a tube down their throat and therefore must be unconscious, have to be kept unconscious. When people come out of a coma and they, they, they reduce the medication and they try and bring them back out, they come out fighting and flailing, putting the tubes and the lines out of their bodies, perhaps they're having a panic attack. And then what happens is that nurse or doctor thinks, whoa, uh, this person's so agitated, I have to put them back. And they put them back in again. And one nurse described this to me, it's, it's, it's like having a hand grenade and pulling the pin and passing it from shift to shift. Because at some point, this is going to explode on some poor nurse when they really do finally have to bring somebody out of a coma. Yeah, so what do you hope that the medical world learns, if anything, from this conversation tonight or from your book? They can keep up to date with the current medical literature, um, which the back of the book, which I wouldn't expect the average reader to, 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 to go through it all, but we list pages and pages of medical and scientific literature that backs up everything we're saying in this book, which is coma is lethal. If you survive, it's exceptionally damaging. That's, that's, that's it. There have been um, many studies on this topic? Many in recent years. What happened was, around about the 1990s, people began to realize that the number of people dying within coma or soon after coma was a cause for concern. And they, some people started to explore this, and they figured that the best thing is no sedation or extreme minimal sedation. Activity, they have to be kept mobilized to keep the body working and to keep the, the brain and the mind working to improve their states, get them better. And they're not getting any of this. They're not getting any of this at all. And doctors will just simply pass people down the line and move on to the next one. And they just don't see the damage. And so you're hoping not only uh, will will medicine learn something, but also the survivors themselves and the families who have had to deal with this. Absolutely, because they haven't had a proper explanation. None of them have had a proper explanation. The book gives them a proper explanation. And here's the funny thing. It's been standard medical procedure for the past 50 years. They've had all this time to explore it. No doctor or, 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 or scientist has produced a book like this. It has taken a journalist, myself, and a private investigator, my wife, to actually show what an absolute scandal this medical procedure is, how absolutely lethal it is. And it's banked up, fully backed up, by, by scientific and medical literature, and there is nothing right. advocating Gotta for long deep sedation. Alan Pierce with us. We'll continue our conversation. More to come with him right after this. Into the
Here we're hearing from some of you who have uh, gone ex through exactly this. In one case, uh, two near-death experiences during his surgery, uh, says Marie over on our Facebook page. can only imagine going, not her personally, family member there. Uh, others uh, sending messages as well, saying that uh, we appreciate the information uh, coming forward because if faced with a decision that we might have to make for our family member in the future to put them uh, in a coma or not to put them in a coma, uh, we, we may decide uh, either way based on the information which is at hand. Uh, Alan Pierce and his wife Beverly Pierce, uh, former, uh, well, current, uh, of course, investigative journalist, but former BBC correspondent and broadcaster and author as well. Uh, they've co-authored Alan and Beverly Pierce, Coma and Near-Death Experience, The Beautiful, Disturbing and Dangerous World of the Unconscious. Uh, if you've had a near-death experience, uh, survived a coma, know, know somebody who has and wants to uh, ask a question or share a comment it's 503-506-0396 in the united states and canada that's 503-506-0396 or itp51 on skype uh, we've been talking a little bit uh, of late with alan about particularly uh, how this is handled in the the medical world and uh, you mentioned you know it's taken uh, you and your wife uh, to bring this information forward i'm interested in some of the studies and and literature that uh, that point to this alan well there's truly a wealth of it a lot of people have been exploring for years different aspects of, of prolonged deep sedation people have explored what happens to the body uh, after being just in bed for so long as you know, as I mentioned earlier, that bed rest for thousands of years has been prescribed for pain. And yet, now, modern studies are just showing how absolutely damaging that is. So th there's, there's, there's that. Um, you know, all sorts of things happen um, without necessarily being in a coma that are similar to this. For example, in surgery, you mentioned people having out-of-body experiences, OBEs. Often when surgery goes bad, people will recount the events and being able to see them from an impossible position, such as the ceiling or whatever, or being able to see the monitors when they're in no position to see them. They have a different interpretation of events. If somebody who's unconscious is placed, for example, into an MRI scanner, I've been told by one person that she thought she was being put into a crematorium and that everything was burning up around her. When doctors and nurses, rather, um, attending a patient such as cleaning their teeth, this is misinterpreted. This is seen as a form of torture that they're having their teeth, teeth shattered or, or whatever. These are people who are not perhaps fully within coma, but they're perhaps just bubbling underneath the surface or in the case of an intensive uh, in case of surgery they're, they're only for a matter of hours but they're finding events much like those in coma where they are physically leaving their bodies and viewing events from outside all right alan where's the best place uh, for the audience to go find out more information about uh, you and your wife's work well, we've got a podcast as well, uh, which we've just started, got three episodes up so far. Um, what we've done, uh, we've had voice artists um, recount some of the stories from within coma, from individual patients. And 
to actually hear it in their own words, not their own voices, but to hear it in their own words is, is just shattering. Um, yeah, let's uh, get to that when we come back. Belief. I'm interested in uh, hearing another one of these experiences. We heard about that one from Nikki before, and uh, hopefully Alan has one that he wants to share with us when we come back. I know he does. He'll just have to figure out which one that is. I'm Jeremy Scott, and more Into the Paranormal coming up after the bottom of the hour news break. This is Paranormal News. An asteroid as big as the Empire State Building was among several that buzzed Earth in the past week. 2008 OS 7 came within one and a half million miles of us on Friday. NASA's Center for Near-Earth Object Studies estimates the space rock between 700 to over 1,500 feet across. It's expected to come back around in 2032. Three much smaller asteroids passed over us this past weekend. There are said to be millions of asteroids in the solar system and over 34,000 now of what are known as near-Earth asteroids. Astronomers say an object of around 300 feet or less that's capable of causing damage is bound to make an appearance about every thousand years. George Henry, Paranormal News. I knew in a flash that I was going to die. I was going to die. Rescue crews pulled his body from the frigid water and immediately began CPR nonstop after 101 minutes. His heart restarted. You were flatlining. And they, you know, they say that that's the moment you're, you are dead. You are dead. Into the paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott. Stop by our website, parabnormalradio.com, for the podcast. If you miss any part of the show, we got the store there. Uh, the shop at parabnormalradio.com slash shop. If you want to just go there directly, uh, appreciate you supporting our sponsors as well. You can get links to the guests, alanpierce.com, and link to the book as well, which is Coma and Near-Death Experience. And we're talking with uh, Alan tonight about exactly that, coma and near-death experience. He studied this, and he's bringing a lot of information uh, to light. So uh, I was really uh, mesmerized by Nikki's experience earlier. Uh, what's another one that you uh, detail in your book? So many of the accounts that are given are actually very, very dark and very, very disturbing. I'll, I'll, I'll try and tell one that... It would work for a general audience at this time of day. So Rory, really, really nice guy, was the victim of an horrific home invasion. And he was airlifted, unconscious, straight to surgery. Within his coma, and he was only down for about a week, within his coma, he woke up and found himself in a luxury house with a big swimming pool and lots of trendy people having a party. And he has no idea why he's there. It's as real as everything we're experiencing now. 
What happens was he's at this party and he's sold as a sex slave to a woman. Now, this doesn't work out and she wants to get rid of him. So she takes him back to the hospital and asks the doctors to put him down like a dog, except Rory is strapped to a hospital bed. A doctor pulls a Frankenstein-style lever on the wall, and the next thing Rory knows, his body's swelling. It's swelling massively. It swells to the size of a car. It turns bright orange. It's covered in spikes. And the doctors are standing there looking at this, and they're, they're dumbfounded. Some are laughing, but they have no idea that this effect would happen. So they're scratching their heads, and the next thing they know, they think, okay, we're bringing in some naked teenage boys who proceed to stab Rory and then drink his blood. And he said to me that he knew he was dying at that point because all he could see was a powerful white light. He was off. That was it. That's it. That's one. But the, the, so that's only one account for within Rory's uh, coma. They are a catalogue of horrendous events, many of them set within a hospital, and yet he had no idea he was in a hospital. He had no idea he was in a coma. And yet he's has these appalling incidents where the hospital turns into a medieval castle and they're, they're shining lasers into his eyes and trying to burn his brain out. It's just horrendous, one thing after another. And Rory's gone from being... A really wonderful, outgoing guy. Lots of talents. He's got musical talents. He, he's got artistic talents. He was a vivacious person, living life to the full. Now he won't even go outside. He can't bear to be amongst people. He's got full-on PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And a vast number of people who survive intensive care, let alone a coma, come out with PTSD. And it's... You know, how do you treat that? It's one thing if you've been, I don't know, a victim of a physical or sexual assault or you've been in a war, you can discuss it perhaps with others who've been in a similar situation. It's exceptionally difficult for people like Rory, in the normal course of events, to find other people he can share a story with. And that's where groups like on Facebook, for example, enable them to, to share. And just by listening to other people, it's therapeutic. By telling their own stories, it's therapeutic. Coma survivors reading this book will find it therapeutic because finally someone's given them a name for their pain. I mean, we can attribute this to a lot of what we discuss on these shows. Uh, many times the experiencers do not come forward uh, because they don't feel comfortable with with uh, with telling someone uh, who's going to uh, not necessarily understand it. Absolutely. They, 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 they don't even know where to turn. Can you imagine trying to recount a story like you know, Rory telling somebody, this this is what I experienced? Well, the doctors are going to say, well, you know, you've had a bad dream. You know, you were in a very deep sleep, which you're not in. And, and, and these are their explanations, and it makes no sense. And almost all of them, if they get a diagnosis, they're told it's ICU delirium, which is just sounds like a minor blip, something that will, will pass. If you have ICU delirium, your chances of surviving are massively reduced. You may either die within the coma or die within six weeks of, of leaving the hospital. It's, it's just so misunderstood. And it's misunderstood because universally there's 
no follow-up in a medical ICU when people are, dis- are discharged and sent down the line. There isn't. And if they get any chance to talk to somebody, they're just given the standard explanations, delirium, hallucination, false memory. That said, we've, we've been helped in this book by some of the finest doctors and nurses imaginable. The, the forward to the book is written by Dr. Wesley of Vanderbilt University, arguably the leading light in critical care medicine. The afterward in the book is written by one of the top nurses anywhere, Kaylee Dayton. And these people have endorsed what we have discovered and what we have brought to the public's attention because they have been trying in their own way and only having minimal success within a small group of people. You, they find it extremely hard to get doctors and nurses who've been doing this for a long period to change their way. They just won't. We've always done this. Uh, My supervisor's always done this. This hospital has always done this. We are not going to change. And they don't. Only by new people coming into the profession and reading the literature that is there, they can see the damage this is causing. If they find themselves in what's called an awake and walking ICU, where they do just that, they keep them awake, they have them walking around, then they can see just how how it's possible for a patient to improve, whereas the same patient undergoing deep sedation will not improve. They will effectively, their lives are destroyed. So a combination of uh, individuals not feeling like they are comfortable enough sharing and and no major follow-up, from uh, the medical professionals, which means uh, no peer-reviewed studies, and and that's why this th- these kind of stories that we're hearing tonight are not, you know, uh, more well known. That's pretty much it. But there is a wealth of uh, of papers. But if you think most doctors and nurses. They're working very, very, very hard. They're having a very, very tough day. They don't always find the time to read a vast amount uh, of medical literature to keep up to date. Um, We've had the luxury of being able to do that. But most doctors and nurses don't have that, and they just do what they've always done and what they've always been told to do. And they often see no reason to change because they don't see the damage that they are causing. I mean, at the least, do you think that there should be some sort of counseling offered after care that would encourage the individual uh, to get some help to talk to somebody who maybe can help them work through some of these situations? Absolutely. And also before, you see, I would say don't put anybody into a medically induced coma apart from a handful of cases. Do not, if if you are placing somebody into a, into a deep sedation, let's say just for a short period of time, You should tell them that you may experience things that are so, so strange that there is a medical scientific explanation for them, such as your default mode network has been switched off, such as the chemical compound DMT has been released into your system. This would account for what you're experiencing. But they just don't know. They just simply do not know. And they can't tell the patient, and the patient's got no one else to talk to. And if they are lucky enough to find others... That's something, but often you find they're sharing the same nonsense that they've been told by the doctors, as in, oh, I had terrible hallucinations in my coma. Um, I have fake memories, I am told. They don't actually believe this, but they don't know what to believe. Alan, you mentioned the dark recollections. Are those the most common? It would appear to, to be. When I've 
sat and looked at the various Facebook groups where people are discussing their events, the word nightmare probably comes up more than any other. Can't be a nightmare because that's a form of dream. You can't dream within a coma. But they are. They are so dark and they just defy all imagination. And it just makes you wonder where these things are coming from. But also, um, if if you look at people who, who, who say take the Amazonian mystic brew ayahuasca or, 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 or the, the, the mushroom peyote, it's not all light in there. And it can, can turn exceptionally dark in the blink of an eye. And you have to be prepared for it. People taking part in a DMT trial or taking ayahuasca or whatever, they're prepped. They know what to expect. They've got people to talk to about about it afterwards. Putting somebody into a coma where their default mode network is switching off, where a psychedelic compound is being pumped into their system, no one is explaining this to them. And uh, But the explanations are there because people are not looking. Well, Alan, we uh, appreciate uh, you coming on uh, the program tonight and and sharing the research that uh, you and your wife have have uncovered. I, I'm wondering how writing this book has has changed your lives, both of you. Oh, totally. Um, prize, prize all of this. I'm a journalist. Um, I, I simply thought dead meant dead. Um, I, I've covered wars and I've covered conflicts, and. I realized when, when, when Rebecca died that my outlook had changed. I'd completely flipped 100%. Um, I would never have described myself as a spiritual person. I actually would now. And uh, it, it, it changed me because the things, the people I've spoken to, these are eyewitness accounts. And as a journalist, I would accept an eyewitness account. In a court of law, you would accept an eyewitness account. The medical world does not accept these eyewitness accounts. And because I'm a journalist and he's a PI, um, we take a different approach and we can see that these things are really happening and they must not be dismissed. They must not be written off as people who are delirious. So what more can be done to uh, to study this phenomenon, you think? Well, I think, first of all, doctors and nurses need to catch up with the, the up, with the literature to be up to speed on this. They need to follow up patients. It is not happening. It is not happening. Hardly, it's hardly happening anywhere. This needs to be a priority. People need to be prepped before you're going to place them into a coma, if you're going to place them in a coma, which I advocate do not. When they come out of it, they need a thorough debrief. They need to be able to talk about it with sympathetic people who are open to the experiences that they're being told and not shutting them down, just saying you hallucinated. Are you uh, offering yourself as a uh, resource uh, for folks uh, who may want to reach out to someone to discuss this with or are there other uh, support groups uh, that are out there that can help as well? We, we list many support groups. In, in, in many ways, I thought that we've, we've done our task here, that we, we've laid out the facts. Uh, we've introduced you to people who've been through these experiences. We've introduced you to doctors and nurses who have seen the errors of their ways, not theirs particularly, but standard medical procedure. They've seen that they've damaged patients. They've seen in some instances they've killed patients. This, people need to wake up. And coma survivors need to be able to find others that they can share this with, be it in a hospital environment or subsequently. But the book, 
The book shows them that they did not go mad. They're experiencing things that mystics and gurus and shaman have been experiencing since the dawn of time. Events within coma are remarkably similar to those that people recount when they've, they've taken, as I say, ayahuasca, DMT, they put themselves in the darkest recesses of caves, they've cut themselves off from the physical world and communing with the spirit world. These are the same events within coma. And people are, have been recounting them since the dawn of time. Uh, since, uh, yeah, for, for many hundreds of years. Oh, thousands. You go back to the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Thousands of years BCE. And you can see in there the things that people are seeing in coma today. All right, and we'll continue. We'll give the final word to Alan Pierce when we come back. I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal. Into the paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and the abnormal as we wrap up the week with you. Always appreciate the opportunity to spend a few hours with you somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal. And I've enjoyed our conversation tonight with Alan Pierce. Alan, P-E-A-R-C-E dot com. A-L-A-N-P-E-A-R-C-E dot com. His website and the book Coma and Near Death Experience. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, that is still uh, going to be coming out or uh, it hasn't come out already has it Alan or did I screw that up as we're speaking it's about three weeks away from publication and, and that's the paper book uh, there's also obviously uh, an audio uh, an ebook but there's an audio book which I highly recommend people to, to listen to it's voiced by the most beautiful South African voice artist Danny Painter and she just does the most exquisite job of bringing these stories to life um, so I highly recommend that. The one thing I would say that if if you have been in a medically induced coma and you feel that nobody understands what you've been through, get them to see the book because they see not only what you've been through, but what you continue to go through. Because if you find it hard to share these experiences with people who haven't got the first clue, the book can do that for you. This is vitally important. And also, if any time they try to put one of your loved ones into a medically induced coma, argue. Um, you'll find that rather difficult because they say, well, they need this deep form of sleep. It's the best thing for them. Ask them to show you some scientific papers that advocate prolonged deep sedation because there aren't any. Um, there isn't anything to suggest it is in any way beneficial outside of a handful of cases such as brain seizures. You mentioned earlier how far back these near-death recollections go. Thousands of years. Oh, it's as far back as, as you go. Um, King Solomon's Book of Spells, for example, um, thousands of years ago, um, recount events in there which you could easily see as a coma event, the sort of nightmare worlds that people are trapped in, the exquisitely beautiful landscapes that people find themselves in, the ability to meet other entities, to meet relatives from the past, converse with them, uh, 
These, these things have been happening since the dawn of time, and yet they've been dismissed by the modern scientific world as mumbo-jumbo because they can't weigh them, they can't see them, they can't measure them. Um, they, therefore, they don't exist, but they do. They most definitely exist, and the evidence for their existence is all around us, and it's always been around us, and now's the time to wake up. Alan, so appreciate you coming on the program tonight, all the way from France, where it is early Thursday morning. So uh, kudos to you. Uh, your final words for the audience tonight, please. Um, take care. And if you've been through this situation, you are not alone. Know that you are not alone. You will find comfort and solace within this book. You will find understanding, and you can use it to show other people just what you've been through because no one really gets it. The book will help for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you coming. Best to you, Alan. Uh, Jeremy, I can't thank you enough. You know, yours is the first radio show ever to explore this subject, so congratulations to you. <laughs> absolutely. I uh, so appreciate you coming on, and uh, glad to hear that uh, we were the first to get this out. I uh, hope the book does really, really well when it comes out in in just a couple of weeks. You know, these these stories are just absolutely uh, amazing. There's, there's something that has to be said, and how can you really study what's there in the void? Uh, as I said earlier in the program, uh, uh, you know, I mean, call it a gray area, whatever you want. You're literally teetering between life and death, and there is so much that happens in those moments. And, uh, you know, even when you're hooked up to all of that medical equipment, there's only so much that that can explain. Something has to be said for those individuals who are coming back with these literal out-of-the-world experiences. I'm seeing emails coming in right now. I don't think I can even get to these. Maybe we'll have to do these on a, another show. Ruptured appendix, uh, emergency surgery, visited heaven, met with deceased relatives, uh, got some insights into the future. Wow, this is just some uh, amazing stuff. I wish we had more time to share those stories. You can contact us up at the website, and maybe we'll have those uh, as a future segment on the program. ParabnormalRadio.com P-A-R-A-B-N-O-R-M-A-L Radio.com I want to thank everybody listening far and wide tonight to the program. Wherever you may be, I'm Jeremy Scott. Somewhere between the paranormal and the abnormal, good night and God bless.